Welcome to Time and Materials, the podcast covering the tough topics for growing early-stage professional services firms. I'm your host, Chris Hart. The podcast today will be summarized in the Time and Materials newsletter. You can find that on Substack and at my website, chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to the podcast. So today we are talking about the process of building fast-growing services businesses. We'll talk more about what fast-growing means in a minute. And we're also going to talk about partner-led sales motions and how that factors into services businesses. And to have those conversations, I'm joined today by Ellen Daly, who is a super experienced founder in the space. I'm very fortunate to have her on the podcast. So Ellen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Super honored to be here. Really appreciate it. That's great. So Ellen, I know we've got a lot to talk about today, but I think one of the things that's helpful for people to have as context is just a little bit about your background and how you came to be a founder in the space and some of what you've accomplished along the way that have really, it's really informed your opinion of fast growing businesses and these kind of partner led sales motions. So maybe you can give us a little bit about your background. Sure. Happy to, and probably need to just, you know, I'm actually not quite the founder of my company came in (laughs) right after, but I'm almost there. So yeah, my background has been pretty circuitous. I I don't necessarily come from a traditional background, but maybe there was no traditional background for people that uh, run services companies. So my educational background is in something pretty esoteric. It's in physics and electrical engineering. Um, And I worked as a physicist until I was like in my early thirties, in a even more esoteric field called underwater acoustics. But at the time, I uh, dropped out of a PhD program and management consulting firms were hiring people with funky backgrounds. So I got hired by Deloitte and started learning business and learning enterprise architecture. And from there, really, you know, if you're a physicist or engineer, you know how to code. So just started doing a lot of coding, large-scale systems and telecom and networks Got a little interest in mobility, wound up doing a startup in mobility, learned a little more about business, jumped over to Forrester Research, which is an analyst firm. And um, even though it's a public company and I started as an analyst, they just gave me tremendous opportunity to learn the business and then ultimately, you know, went to the exec team and, and ran uh, P&L there globally for, for quite a while and from there, felt it was time for something else. And then uh, had a friend who was working at a company that was a few months old, had a few people that had connected with ServiceNow and really felt that ServiceNow was going to be a really significant impact in how companies work, um, large companies work, and felt like they needed a partner ecosystem. So that's how I wound up as CEO of Acorio, which was the name of um, our firm that was a, exclusively a ServiceNow partner. That's amazing. So uh, there's a, a bunch to dig in there. And I, I think you're right that it, it seems like everybody who has been a leader or founder of a professional services business, it doesn't seem like there's a, a super direct path there. There's always some kind of a story that's uh, circuitous in nature. So you know, before we jump into some of the the partnership angles and the, the fast growing aspect of the business of Acorio. I'm curious, do you think that the the preparation that you got in some way, even if it wasn't intentional, how did all those those steps along the way before you got to Acorio, was there something about that that prepared you in a way that you, you only realized after the fact? <laughs> I think that's a great question. And I, yeah, I think I'm still realizing it at times, <laughs> you know, 
you know, personally for me, I, I feel lucky that I've worked for like some pretty amazing companies that had really good cultures. Like even back as a scientist, SAIC in the early days was a very flat structure where even the uh, CEO uh, had the title member uh, technical staff. And the culture aspect of, I think, what we built came from every company, Forrester, you know, the idea of breeding curiosity in a company that, that you know, people who are really talented want to join so they can keep learning and keep growing themselves and attracting that type of talent. So just been so like incredibly lucky to have all these people and experiences along the way that I think helped us form what I thought was a really special culture and high quality uh, business the other side of my brain, because I always had a little bit of an insecurity that I don't, I probably still do. I don't have an MBA. I didn't ever take a business class. I like, you know, had a Google, had to, had to deal with the balance sheet kind of thing. Um, I uh, have learned that the date, like the fact that I'm sort of math oriented and data oriented really helped us take a very quantitative view of the business and focus on predicting the business, which as you know, in a services business is really hard, but using analytics and heuristics. And so I, I think my background and maybe like others that helped really impact how we ran the business, very data oriented. Yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me. I think for lots of founders, when they reach back into their histories, they find these experiences that in aggregate somehow helped inform how they run the business or, or maybe it shapes the way that you approach some of the problem solving that goes into it. And I, I love what you said about the analytical part of your brain and that kind of driving or, or coming through in how you ran the business, you know, later as, as you were, you know, you found yourself as the, the CEO of Acorio. And I think, you know, I, I talk about the same thing. You know, I, I say that I accidentally worked for banks for 15 years, which is, you know, absolutely true. It was, it was kind of accidental to the extent that you can do anything accidentally for a decade and a half. But, uh, you know, again, it, it, it kind of teaches you some things and, and I think prepares you in a way again, that you, you don't fully predict uh, until you get into those situations. So, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about when you talked about working for Forrester and, and, you know, that not being exactly the same business that you eventually or type of business that you started ended up running. Do you feel like that was, that was helpful in that it, it taught you some of the things about just like the, the types of things to be concerned about in the business that, um, you know, you went back to, you found yourself kind of leaning back on as you started a choreo. Yeah, you know, good, good question. The, I, I think at first it, it was like two things that really helped. One was, I guess, the direct business management side. So I, I always say running a P&L is wholly different than running a company. Like sometimes, you know, people will say, oh, have you run a really big P&L? And in Ellen Daly's mind these days, someone says that to me, I'm like, I have a tremendous respect for that. Yet I know that even if there's, you know, $100 million P&L, $500 million, a billion dollar P&L. And I learned those skills at Forrester, not, not a billion dollar P&L, it was a much smaller P&L. But it's so different than actually having to worry about the cash and worrying about, am I going to make payroll? And do I have the capital to make payroll? And how do I predict the business to make sure I have the capital? So the experience at Forrester in the first way definitely helped me understand like the importance of managing P&L. Cause like, as I said before, I had like no clue what was going on. Right. Cause I didn't have any business background. So that was really helpful and, and how to think about it. Even though the business was different, you know, a Forrester type business is like a software business. It's an annuity business. It's uh, you sell a subscription 
and it keeps giving to you. It's a very predictable revenue stream. We had a side of our business that also was consulting. And so that was, and I ran that um, for a bit, the worldwide consulting. And that certainly helped me understand the importance of big deal size so you can get your utilization solid and don't drive people crazy by putting on you know different things. The other side of Forrester that like, I think for me that really helped was when you're at Forrester, you're skating across a pretty big pond of the tech ecosystem. And part of Forrester's gig is, you know, you get insight into a lot of vendor companies and like how they run things. You get a lot of insight into a lot of customers and what they like. And, and that experience really, for me, formed an opinion. And I, I kind of think this about, you know, any services firm, like you could create a professional services firm and decide to be a super low cost provider and volume based. You could decide to be, there's just so many different options. For me from Forrester, what I learned was the value of the strategy of premium, you know, of um, saying and fulfilling the promise to the customer that it's never just technology. It's always process and org change and technology. And if we can provide that value to you, you know, you will pay higher money, will attract people that have those brain types that look at the whole entire problem and hopefully deliver better value. So it's kind of both sides that Forrester gave me. Yeah. The interesting thing about what you're talking about, especially the, the kind of first half of that and the notion of running a PL and how that's different than running a business. I, I can't wait to dive into that into, in more detail because I think that that's one of the things that really surprises people. If you've only ever worked in a big company and all of a sudden you find yourself thinking, oh, well, I've got all these tools because I used to manage a PL or I used to manage a budget. And it's like, yeah, no, like that managing a budget in a big public company is not anything even remotely close to managing an early stage, any kind of business, but especially a, a one that's fast growing and, and very cash flow sensitive the way that services businesses are. But I think one of the things that you you mentioned is that I, I think it does expose you to the the value of like operational rigor. So this idea that you know, you're talking about predictability of the business and having processes in place and you know the how you appreciate that that creates predictability in the business but also as a you know in an early stage business you don't want too much of it right because you have to have the flexibility yeah. and you have to be able to grow so like that you know how you kind of uh, counterbalance the desire to have those types of processes and controls with the hey you know we don't want to be the wild west completely but we need to be a little bit of the wild west so that we can adapt if i may may i just react to that like that to me is still the hardest thing because I always say like, you know, if, if you're a process-minded person, you start seeing opportunity for process early on, but it can completely slow everything down, right? And I know my team gave me tons of feedback. Like, they're like, Ellen, you're you're going too heavy on process. There's only 10 of us and I'd, I'd have to adjust, you know? So uh, just that really resonated with me. Yeah, well, it, it's a challenging thing too, because it's so subjective. There's no agreed upon measurement, like standard measurement for, oh, I've, you know, I've got a hundred units of, of process or I've got zero units of, of process and everybody's scale is a little bit different. So it, it's so hard to know how to calibrate where you are on that scale until you've been through it and, and you just kind of develop a gut instinct for it. Right. So hard. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to talk a little bit about this notion of a fast growing business, because I, I think at least the way that I think about this, and I'm, I'm curious if you agree with this and if you can maybe unpack how to think about it, but at least the way that I think about it, you know, you, you think about the universe of professional services businesses just holistically, right? And that's, that can embody a whole bunch of different types of, of companies. And then, you know, I think a lot of people end up kind of narrowing in on things that are 
either IT services or technology adjacent or technology enabled. And that's kind of a subset of professional services businesses. And then even within that, there's this notion of like the really fast growing businesses versus the ones that are, are still really good businesses. There's nothing you know pejorative about it, but they might be growing more slowly. And I think that that first category of the really high growth technology or technology adjacent businesses, that's this kind of unique category of business that's, that's, got its own unique challenges to run. So I guess the first question is, do, do you agree with that kind of as a, as a sentiment in general? Yeah, I really do. It, it's funny. My background comes from more slower growing businesses, to be honest, you know, like really big, throwing off a lot of cash, you know, then that's what's, you know, particularly like a Forrester syndicated, you know, um, annuity type businesses do. And they, but they don't tend to grow so fast, you know, typically. In professional services, I have so much respect for smaller firms, right, that are haven't maybe taken capital and but they have learned how to optimize their business and their clients that they are producing incredible margins, you know, gross and and bottom line. But that is a wholly different business to run than a fast growing business, as you as you know, as you're getting at Chris. And in fact, I'm I'm helping one one company right now and they they've been around for maybe 14 years and in that in that slow model, never took funding, super profitable, super well-respected. And then the founder said, Hey, look, you know, we're ready to try something different. And it's very interesting to observe now that they they've taken some outside investment, the shifted mindset and the thinking it, it's quite different. And, and then they talk about it all the time now that they're trying to get to hundred percent growth a year, 40% growth a year. Yeah. yeah. So I do agree with that. These like that, the two types of businesses, right? Like, yeah. Well, and I think you, you just hit on something that's a really interesting observation in that you can, it is possible to start off as a slower growth business and with intentional decisions, move into a, a faster pace of growth, right? I think it is. I think it does. And company I'm working with will probably like, if they were here, like the, the founders will tell you it's real different, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is possible for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I'm sure it, it changes a lot of the natural ways of operating. And there's probably muscle memory that has to be broken down to be able to get into that mode versus starting that way from the very beginning and just knowing, hey, we're going to we're going to optimize the business to grow really fast, even though that might create more pain for us in the short term. Yeah, yeah. Like it, and I joke with them sometimes that's even coming down to like, oh, you know, we have a new deal in. Do you hire people only when you sign the deal or do you hire the two people a month before? Like in those two different types of businesses, you get wildly different answers, right? Uh, answers. No, not until we're signed. If you're tend to be really focused on the bottom line and not growing so fast and, oh yeah, we got to get him in early and train him up because we got a bunch of other stuff behind that we have. So yeah, just an yeah. example of the difference. So I, I know you're an analytical person. So I'm I'm curious. I, I know there's there's probably maybe there is a fixed line, but how do you how would you delineate between a fast growing services business and then maybe a more like modest pace or slow growing business? What's what are the things that you look at? Where's the dividing line? Yeah, and maybe because I'm analytical, I'll be curious if you you see it this way. But when I see any, you know, let's say it's a sub sub seventy million, sub hundred million dollar business, you're growing at thirty percent. 
you know, uh, if you're sub 50 growing to 40, you're fast growing in my yeah. in, in my book, right? And probably 20% is fast growing if you're on the higher end of that 70 million. And, you know, so it's a size, size growth proportionality. But in terms of the characteristics, and I don't know if that's kind of where you're going of, of a high growth business is I feel there, especially in professional services, there's just such a focus on sales. Like, you know, there's a much more rigorous approach to thinking about sales, pipe heuristics to try to use that data to, to ensure that you're going to hit the growth that you can. And usually investment is oriented towards sales and marketing. I mean, that's certainly one big hallmark. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think I would have a similar challenge saying that's a very specific percentage, but I think the percentages that you said make sense to me. And I totally agree. You know, it's one of those things where it's dependent on how much revenue you're generating. So if you're in the, you know, one to $10 million a year range of revenue, it's a lot easier. I mean, it's painful and it involves lots of hard decision-making and luck and, you know, all sorts of things that go into being fast growth. But yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, any business that's growing, you know, over 20%, for sure is, is kind of at least could be considered in that category. I think the smaller the annual revenue amounts are, the, the kind of higher you need to be. I mean, you can, you know, there are businesses that grow 30, 40, 50, even a hundred percent, you know, in, in those early stages, it just gets harder as, as the absolute numbers get bigger in terms of revenue. You know, you, you mentioned sales being a hallmark of these fast growing businesses. And I think at least you know, my perspective has been, this is where fast growing businesses sometimes turn into slow growing businesses, if they can't professionalize and scale the sales model and and how they're kind of going to market. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think about that or how, what are the the traits that a fast growing business has and the stages that they move through in terms of their sales professionalism? Yeah. Having lived through it um, for sure. Um, Starting off with like, you know, half a sales person and then growing to, you know, a 30 person direct sales team for me and my, my perspective is is that I don't like to put too much even if there's investment too much like let's assume we're, we're focusing on like a, a fast-growing business we want to build a fast-growing business it's really tempting to take capital and be like let me go hire 20 salespeople you know <laughs> my experience is, is don't do that <laughs> don't do that that's really dangerous because as you say, you could go, you could just start eating cash and become a slow growing business because you're not quite ready for it, you know? Yeah. And um, I'd like to be a little measured, which is for me, it was always important to like hire a player, a strong leader uh, for like as soon as I could, but ask them to be a player also, right? So someone that might've had experience running a sales team, setting processes around a sales team, but also could go out and sell themselves, which those people are really hard to find, to be honest. Well, they're hard to find. And I think it, it's hard to know when you found one. At least this was my experience. I'm curious if you have the the secret sauce to, you know, uh, figure out how to, how to predict this kind of performance. But it was always challenging, at least from my perspective, because you could look at someone on paper, talk to them extensively, feel really good about it, it looks like they've been successful in the past. They probably have been successful in the past, but then, you know, all of a sudden they get into this new environment and they can't necessarily do it. And it's so hard to predict performance. I think for in general, for like sales people, like I, I have like a 30 pretty high failure rate, like, and we would plan for that failure rate just because not that they weren't really talented people, but in this environment, at this moment, with this service, it wasn't right. In terms of like, I just feel really lucky. I had this amazing like partner sales leader that 
I found, I, I still, you know, Brian Murphy, amazing guy. And, um, he, in his ex- background though, he had big companies. So he knew the process, like he, yet he also had done some startups and even was a business owner himself when he tried to go out of tech. And then, so for me, that, that combination of, of having to live through like startup y kind of stuff in the tech space, in a non-tech space, and also been exposed to what, you know, was it look to have a good comp plan? You know, what are the right sales stages with probabilities? All the things that are really important to establish. And again, to help drive sales, but also to help establish predictability using your pipe. Um, so I was really lucky, but no, I have no secrets. I have, ironically, I, I remember hiring this this one woman and it was horrible early on, even before I had my sales leader, it was just a horrible fit. And I had worked with her at Forrester. Like she was amazing. She was like the top salesperson, but in the choreo wasn't, it wasn't a fit. And since then I've worked with her again and she's amazing again. So it's like, it's really hard. And it wasn't her, it was just the situation, you know? Yeah. It's very context dependent. And I think what, what you were mentioning that may be worth unpacking a little bit more is that you don't go from no professional scaled sales organization to having this perfectly scaled, fully operational sales organization overnight. It's, I think people think that they can get from point A to point B in one hop. And it's, I don't know anybody who's ever done it. It's, you know, you have to go from, I feel like the initial team doing all the selling and kind of being like a seller doer type to then, you know, very gradually moving from that to, oh, I can find one person, one more person who can sell and do to then kind of building this more organized machine and in parallel to that, having to introduce marketing to some degree too, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, that was always a challenge, but, but you're ac- totally right. You need, you need to find people and have like the belief or at least even the coaching capabilities to, to keep moving up as the company moves up, you know, in skill. I mean, just a comment on marketing. I, I know nothing about marketing <laughs> as I, like I, I was, I had no experience in how it like so critically important in a services company for I'm sure you probably see it the same way, not just for clients and in partner-led ecosystems with the partner, but also for talent. Like if you're yeah. competing for talent and if you're fast growing, likely is it's a, for a pretty hot skill set or set of skills. And so your marketing brand is also going to help impact your employer brand. I mean, your client marketing. I found that would be really important connection. Yeah. Well, and you, you touched on culture in the very beginning of this conversation and I totally agree. I think that the culture aspect of it, ideally, the culture that you're building in the company comes through the marketing and the sales and the employee acquisition and retention side of things. And you have to kind of keep all those things moving in unison, which is really challenging as a leader. You know, one of the things that all of these kinds of topics point to is, you know, everything that we're talking about costs money, right? So all like the, the marketing, building the sales team, even the, the kind of hiring, you know, almost like just in time, like, you know, trying to get ahead of hiring when you're about to sign a, a, a new big deal. How do you think about managing the, the two dials of growth and profit? So, you know, you're, it, it seems like it's a delicate kind of balancing act. So how, like, what kind of guidance do you give to, to leadership trying to navigate that. Yeah. What it like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a billion dollar question and I'm sure like you and others like have strong opinions on it. I guess sometimes it comes back to what you want to build and what you're in it for. You know, I feel 
really strongly that those dials are inextricably related, right? You know, high growth usually means pretty low profit, right? There's exceptions, but in professional service, it's kind of hard, you know? And low growth usually means pretty, pretty strong profit. I have been part of a company that went to the max on growth and like break even on the profit line. And that is a model if, and, you know, being investor backed, if the idea is to exit, you know, build a great company, everyone share in the value of that company and then exit and everyone move on. Um, and in Acorio, that, that was the belief, you know, everyone had a piece of the pie. That high growth that comes with limited profit, it's a model. I have to say it's a risky model, you know, like, you know, just hanging out on the break-even line. And certainly in today's macroeconomic environment, not one that I would be a proponent of again. Instead, I like to think, and I, I see it, it, you could you could grow pretty strong, you know, you know, let's say you're, you know, 10 million, $30 million company, grow that 20%, 30%, yet still, you know, deliver at least close to double digit EBITDA, you know, again, it's all size dependent, but And that is really healthy because I think in the end of business, I feel, is not just to make a profit, but to create a great place for employees to work and people advance their careers, have a great place to make an impact on clients, hopefully make some impact on the community if that's the type of ethos that you're building. And I care about that. And the only way to do that is if your business is healthy, right? And a sign of a healthy business is definitely you got to look at gross margin, but bottom line matters too. So you don't want to, you know, invest so much in OPEX and sales so that your, you know, your gross margins look fine and your EBITDA is like negative. Like that, that's, I don't think that's a healthy business, especially in today's environment. And when uh, deal sizes get elongated in these macroeconomic times, and you're going to maybe have a little more bench, you want to have some cushion there. Yeah. I, I, so much of that resonates with me. I, I think, you know, people get tempted to believe that services businesses can have the same dynamics that, a fast growing SaaS business can have and they just they can't grow that fast and and the the numbers don't work the same way so i I agree with you i think you you have to have a good fiscal discipline and have the capability to generate profit you know one way that i've thought about it and i'm I'm curious if you agree with this or if you if you have ideas on, on how to go about doing it is you know it's like on the one hand you want to make sure that you can run and deliver projects profitably. So if you're very disciplined around managing gross margin and you're able to look at not just at an aggregate gross margin across the company, but look at on a project by project or client by client basis and say, okay, these, these projects are being delivered with a healthy gross margin and really understanding the the true gross margin of those projects. So you're taking into account the billable staff and the non-billable support staff that may be going into it. That's a a good kind of test to say, okay, well, we know how to make money, right? We can we can deliver projects profitably, and I think a lot of services businesses can't can't necessarily do that. But if you can get to that point, then you kind of earn the right or earn the the kind of uh, capability around financial discipline to say, okay, well, maybe we'll do some experiments, and we can we can give up some of our EBITDA to to do an experiment in sales and marketing, or we can invest in some employee programs and see if they make a result because you know, Hey, I, you know, if, if that doesn't pan out, I can just turn the switch off and I know that I can, I will have 
bottom line to to point to. But I feel like too many people skip that first step of being truly disciplined around gross gross margin. And if you can't get to that, then then you don't get the right to go do the experiments with your EBITDA. You bet. But you, you know, it's interesting, Chris. I had never you know, really thought it through exactly those lens before. I think that's exactly right, right? I had, you know, just thinking about what you just said, I mean, your gross margin is is everything to start off with. And if you can't do be delivering your product or your service, you know, profitably, you got some, yeah, you're not going to have any room to even experiment or investigate uh, what you could do on the OPEX side or money to, to put it back into the business. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. It's interesting. I, I feel like for gross margin, just on that topic, it's a like, I guess this is a pet peeve of mine or whatever. I feel like everyone understands project margin, right? And usually you can deliver pretty well with project margin, but because the what goes into gross margin can be fungible at times. I think I've seen some businesses fool themselves that their gross margins look good and they have significant delivery overhead because their project margins look good. And I, I think really watching that and, and erring on the conservative side of your calculation of gross margin to ensure that you're optimizing it, as you're saying, is important. Yeah. In your view, what what's a good gross margin target for one of these fast-growing businesses? Yeah. So this is, I, I laugh because I work with some private equity folks and they're like 42% <laughs> of it, 30%. And I, go, I don't think that's possible. Not if you're yeah. doing project consulting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of throwing numbers around, but I think yeah. they'd say north of 45%. So project margins, cert, like if you're doing project consulting versus managed services, like my view, and I'd be curious about yours for project consulting. I believe project margin should be 55% plus, you know, if not 60% you know, plus. The gross margin, if you're growing around, let's say high growth, 30%, you are going to need some infrastructure and managers and people to help, you know, build the business um, in that delivery organization. And I think you're doing real good if you're at like 37%, 38% of gross margin. I think like anyone, you know, investors and others want to squeeze those. Of course. The trick, of course, and I, maybe this is where you're going, is to try to get some type of managed services to be a component of your portfolio so that, because usually that has higher margin, at least in my experience of certain types, and it helps um, it helps lift up the overall margin. Yeah. Well, and uh, it, it also has the benefit of usually much higher net revenue retention too, which is always a nice thing to, to have as a kind of added bonus. Yeah, gotta love that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think you know, thirty-seven to forty-five percent is is pretty healthy. I think one of the things that that also points to is that you've got a non-commoditized service offering. So you know, a lot of times I think where businesses start to see those lower gross margins is because they're offering something that either is a commodity or they haven't figured out some kind of differentiator or so, you know, some, something that makes them special that allows you that, that premium shows up a lot of times in gross margin. And so if you haven't figured that out, then, you know, that, that's a good thing to, to try to sort out if you can. Yeah. Some way to differentiate so you can get the bill rates to, and then, you know, the right cost for the talent uh, to deliver. I also, and I feel really strongly that, that you could have even really good differentiation and your gross margins can still kind of be challenged if your deal size is too small, because it just comes, you know, if, if in this, the, where you're working, your deal sizes are 50, 60 K and you're not charging $500 an hour, 
you're going to be hard pressed to build a really successful business, you know, and I, I, I find some founders, at least that I work with elsewhere that they have some ideas and, you know, first question is like, well, what's the deal size, you know? And, and it's like, well, the biggest is 70 K we think, but there's a lot of them, you know, and, and that becomes super hard. You know? Yeah. The sales cycle ends up being so costly and there's, right. you know, it, it just, it, it's really hard to scale that kind of business. Plus I would imagine you end up with all sorts of choppiness around utilization. Utilization. Yeah. And, you know, you, you hit on one other thing that I'd like to come back to, which is you, you, you mentioned, you know, these fast going, growing businesses and how capitalized they are and being able to, to hire and fund growth. And I think one of the things for, for someone who hasn't run one of these businesses before is just how the, the cash flow dynamics affect your ability to grow because you can have really high demand and really good gross margins, but you know, the business is so sensitive to collections. The business is so sensitive to, you know, how quickly can you get someone started after they're hired? Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, what kind of guidance do you give to a leadership team who's trying to navigate, like, how do I fund this growth? Yeah, I have the greatest respect for people that have bootstrapped a company and then grown it. Like, you know, I haven't done that. I think it's inc- and grown it to be something, you know, you know, significant. It's it's really hard. That said, if you decide, I guess there's always two options. I'm not sure if this is where you're going with the question, right? Like, you know, you can bootstrap it um, and then figure out how to fund the growth, or you can go out and try to get some capital on the left side, maybe on both sides. You know, for me, I was pretty naive about, you know, even getting lines of credit um, to borrow off receivables. Um, It took me nine banks, (laughs) finally got one, (laughs) super painful, but found a great partner in one. And that, that certainly helped get operating, you know, the, the operating liquidity that we needed to be successful. And I, I, I just recommend, and I've talked to a couple of young companies that don't have lines of credit. And I think it's, you know, that, that work off of receivables, you know, you can mm-hmm. borrow up to 80% of receivables or something, and it's a rotating line. R- r- easy answer just to help with some of that stress, you know, of when does the check come? I didn't know if you were going to, down the path of like getting funding. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what what do, do you have guidance that you give to early stage companies who are contemplating, hey, do I, you know, do I go sell equity in the company to try to fund this growth? Is that a good idea? Yeah. I tell people it depends on what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or I, I mentioned I, you know, uh, share my perspective. You know, I I had this the most amazing investor and it was a pretty unique scenario. Um uh, an investor that op- operated like you could even say VC and PE, but it wasn't institutional money. It was all his money. So it was a bit of a unique and a great partner. Just so lucky. I think for early early stage services companies, like early stage let's say sub 10 million, you know, usually private equity is not so interested that they'll come a little bit later in terms of investment um, to make their, their, you know, their limited partners happy. Or So what you have available to you is, you know, the few VCs that might invest in services or, you know, angel or, you know, local, you know, more. And I always say, I think if you want to grow really fast, it's, it works, you know, however, I think giving up control of your company is really, I don't think you could ever be prepared for that, right? I've seen some founders who've given up majority control and it's just sometimes doesn't feel like their company anymore because it becomes their values. While I think many people will say, of course, we believe in the values. Once a formal investor comes in, they also have 
duties and responsibilities that they have to meet. And that because of the majority investor might dominate versus some other, you know, like nuanced things, like just to give an example for me, like having a summit or an all company event might be really important for the culture when you're, you know, 50 people, if you have an investor, they may have a different perspective of that cost, you know? Yeah. Well, especially if they haven't either been an operator in a services business before, or they, they don't really understand the nature of the business. It's hard for them to necessarily know or appreciate what has value, what doesn't. And to your point, you end up giving up a lot of control. So I, I think, you know, it is tempting because it's, you know, superficially, it seems like a better deal in some ways to just go get a big check from selling some equity and then have cash in the bank to go fund growth. But if you don't know how your investors will operate or to what extent you're going to give up some kind of control or have the culture of the business changed because of having that investor involved. That's challenging. I think the other thing just to maybe give a, an alternative perspective on this is that when you're in the sub $10 million range, you probably want the money, but not necessarily the help that an investor could provide. But as things get bigger and more complicated, it can actually be beneficial to have an investor who's you know not necessarily hands-on, but can help out with either introductions or, you know, helping connect the right dots or, or, you know, just provide expertise in some of the more challenging kinds of situations that come up as you get bigger. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, good VCs do in VC investable businesses and SaaS businesses is they help the leadership teams and the founders navigate those situations. I think that's the one thing that you risk losing if you don't have a, a kind of sophisticated, operationally savvy investor is, you know, you, you think you, you know, you, you want like a smart voice in the room and all of a sudden you don't have one if you don't have an investor like that. I'm with you, you know, Chris, and I, I see it, you know, from, from both sides. I, I do think as you get bigger, right. Let's say I, I usually, I say 10 million and there's a, tr- and I didn't appreciate this till maybe even more recently, you know, doing more board work, there's tremendous value in having like a board cadence and, you know, life is a series of checks and balances, right? Our governments are, at least the way I see it, you know, our, maybe even our personal relationships, you know, you, you, and so having that check and balance, like, cause is really helpful. It can be annoying at times and painful a little bit, yeah. but really helpful. I guess I'd also say that I'd be very conscious of, I have found many professional investors, you know, private equity firms, very upfront about, I'm not an operator. You know, I'm the finance guy. And so if we're going to put an investment in your company, we'll be on the board. You'll be on the board, you know, uh, founder of company. And we're going to look for an independent uh, board person, someone who's actually been an operator to bridge that, you know, conversation that invariably will come up where, you know, CEO is saying something and the, you know, more financial oriented um, investors are saying something else. And how do you meet in the middle and that and, and get the advice that's going to make sense? I also think a minority stake is is also, you know, helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. I think the the type of role that you're talking about, and I, I know you you play this role for some companies of being able to see both sides of, you know, where the investors are coming from, where the operators of the business are coming from, and also having the experience to navigate some of these these challenging environments. Having someone like that is is super ben- beneficial. I think the other thing that you brought up is the the one nice thing about outside investors 
acknowledging that there's lots of challenges too. But the one nice thing about having external investors is that you get forced into having some kind of board cadence. And I think corporate governance is such like a, a terrifying term for, for founders and early stage company leaders until you realize the types of situations that good governance prevents, right? Like good, good corporate governance prevents all sorts of gnarly scenarios that when they do happen, it, it's, it can be very destructive to the company. Yeah. Well said <laughs> from legal <laughs> to security. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I always say like, you know, I'm not, I'm never the smartest person in the room. So I'm like, there's a whole reason why that's how corporations are set up, <laughs> you know, and like, and even private corporations to have, you know, the checks and balances and it just helps, man. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I guess I do want to get around to the, the second topic that we have in a little bit here, but, but maybe as a, a way to wrap up this conversation about fast growing businesses. So if you were talking to a founder or a leadership team of a business and they, they wanted to go down this path of having a high growth services business, what would be the advice that you give to them as a way to get started to set themselves up for success? Yeah, well, there's so much, right? And I, I, I'm sure you have some really good advice too, but I, I'll, I'll share my, my perspective is um, I, I tend to think of a business in peace points compartments, you know, and departments that, that all are in service of the strategy, right? So like pick a strategy, like, and what I mean by that is I hear very often, like, I got a really bunch of smart people and we're going to do data engineering stuff. And we're also going to be doing product engineering and we can also implement Salesforce and, you know, we're going to look for work. And, and I feel that that is not that's an impossible strategy to differentiate on or even tell a story on, right? Because a lot of um, differentiation is telling the story. So I'd say pick a strategy and, and in that strategy, not just the services that you're going to be focusing on, but the value that you're going to provide, right? Like, and, and I would really strongly recommend, as I used to say to Corio, if anyone calls us an implementer, we were attached to ServiceNow. Like we only focused on doing ServiceNow work. If anyone, if I hear anyone calling us an implementer, you're out, you know, joking around, not really, because we were consultancy, right? Because consultancy provides value um, in, in, you know, my mind at least. Um, and we articulated that in our branding and in the type of people we hired, you know, we only had 50% of the team were technical. The rest were advisory process and, you know, really strong engaged program management people. So, and that strategy also has to include the type of company you're going after, you know, building a strategy that goes after SMBs, again, very different business than growing after, you know, mid-level enterprise and, and enterprise where you sell, you know, is it going to be in the U S is it going to be in Mexico and where are you, you know, all those are strategy you know, things set that, but don't be wed to it, you know? And I'd also say, don't pick too many partners. I see a lot of times people are like, I'm going to work with all these partners and they're going to give me leads. No one ever gives you leads for free, like ever, never, ever on the face of the earth. <laughs> right. You have to have a relationship and you have to, and it takes time to build a relationship. So if you got a lot of partners, it could be hard. I'm not saying it's impossible. So I, I start with the strategy. And then when I think about those elements or departments of the business, I say, so you're building fast growing now. Now get somebody, talk to people about what will it mean for that group to be fast growing? What do they have to do? Right. And then you wind up with things that say, oh, in marketing, okay, we're a consultancy and advisory. We're going to have to have thought leadership out there that hits multiple roles. Right. And we're going to have to have it at a cadence because we know we want a lot of leads because we're going to be fast growing. And, and 
maybe I'm building on this too much, but I think for every department, there's, when you think about fast growing, when you think about, oh, that department, and then you add the, you know, (laughs) fast growing at the end of the sentence, it changes how you think about that function in support of the strategy. And then it also tells you, like as an example, oh, I need someone maybe to play a part-time role in sales operations because we got to get the process down. So it's kind of how I think about it. I could go on and on about that, but I'll I'll stop there. (laughs) I I love that. I think that that's great. I think the part that really resonates with me is the, the focus that you're talking about, because I think when people think about starting a a business that they want to be fast growing, they think, Oh, you know, the market needs to be huge and I need to have so many, as you said, yeah, I need to have so many leads and I need to be able to generate all these sales and to be able to do that. It's tempting to think I need to cast a really wide net and, and it's, it's, you know, it's almost paradoxical because the wider the net you try to cast, like the fewer things you end up catching. It's like, you need to, you, you need to narrow it in. And if you're operating in a big market, like in the United States, there's tons of you pick any anything that you think is a niche and that it's so deep there's so many prospects so many so allow yourself to to be focused as is what i'm hearing you say and don't be tempted by the things that are off you know outside the the edges or outside the frame just stay focused on on the strategy that you pick to your point don't be wed to it in the sense that you know you've tried it for 18 months and it's going nowhere like clearly you can't keep doing that but you know, pick something and chase it long enough to actually see it pan out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then pivot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or find something successful that's adjacent to it. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. We're going to end there for today, but there is more to this conversation. We're going to be picking back up with Alan in our next episode where we talk about partner-centric services businesses. You won't want to miss it. Subscribe to the Time and Materials newsletter and podcast at chris-hart.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-A-R-T.com so that you don't miss it. Talk to you next time.